lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And of course, I am joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All right. To put it mildly, we had a bit of difficulty this morning. Um, just a little bit. Just a little bit. All of the lights in the building were down. Um, there was thoughts that maybe Zelensky was trying to get back at us with his vast <laughs> powers um, and his awesome Vogue cover shoots. But apparently, not so much. We're here. We're going to do the news. How you guys doing this morning? Pretty good. Pretty good. Fi- fi- finally in here. Yeah. Reese? I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's You're go. ready. Let's go. All right. So, you guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I'm going to do the monologue since we're not going to do the media t- for today. We're not going to do headlines for today, only because we are kind of under a time crunch with the guests that we want to bring on. Um, but there are things that I do want to talk about. And I guess we can start this off before we bring in our guest, Mark Sloboda. Um, Europe, what I need you to do in this moment is stop crying. I need you to stop crying. Look, and I need you to stop blaming other people for your own failings and miserable decisions. And what I mean by that is you had a situation where they're now blaming the U.S. for taking advantage of them. Oh, the U.S. is, is charging us too much for, for energy. Their, their LNG is so expensive. We're supposed to be in this together, and they're just charging us all of this money. I can't believe that they're taking advantage of us. Then you're blaming Russia. Oh, Russia, we started an economic war, but Russia is taking advantage of us. They are trying to use energy as a weapon, despite the fact that we tried to use our strong economic might in order to destroy the Russian economy and, for that matter, drag them into a military conflict somehow. It's Russia's fault that Europe is going through this. This puts me in mind of a scene from um, Dead Presidents. Dead Presidents. Where the soldier comes home, he goes upstairs, and he sees his girlfriend with another guy who just so happens to be a pimp. And the guy who's a pimp, as they're walking outside, they're having a conversation, they're popping off. The pimp slaps him, knocks him down the steps, puts a gun in his mouth and said, don't bite the hand that feeds you, and then disparaged him with the N-word after that as if that needed to take place. It feels like that a little bit. All things being equal, Joseph Burrell, he is the top EU diplomat, came out with a piece that it's like, yeah, but why didn't you know that? The Europeans sit there with this inflated sense of confidence, this hubristic level of ego, without necessarily having anything underlying in order to justify the level of Herculean ego that seems to be um, appropriated by the group of gang of idiots that's in these particular countries that have allowed Joe Biden, a man with an approval rating, not even hitting 40%, to dictate and guide them right off of a cliff. No need to check the parachute. And it's not a parachute. It's a thing of rocks. Europe is in a situation right now where it has no way to extricate itself from. It has no clear plan on how to get out of it. And all things been equal, they're looking for a magical door. And in one situation after the next, they've taken policies based on hyperventilation, based on wishful thinking, instead of actually nailing down real world physical reality and how they're going to, let's say, dance between the raindrops to get them from point A to point B. Instead of making decisions that were in the best interest of your country, you decided to make decisions that was in the best case of the United States. And in that very particular situation, forego your ethical, legal, philosophical responsibilities to the people who elected you into those positions. This level of hubris, Herculean hubris, as opposed to actually what 
capabilities do we really have at our disposal? And should we take actions that are going to potentially adversely affect our populations? And if you are going to take those actions, especially when you are completely tethered and need, let's say, support, energy, food from all of these other constituent countries, if that's indeed the situation into which you find yourself, why on earth would you not think about what you were doing before you did it? And this idea of crying after the fact over spilled milk, oh, our industries are shutting down. Oh, uh, we're sitting around at 68-degree temperature. Oh, we have to take cold showers. Oh, we're so angry that we don't necessarily have the cost or the money to pay for the food increases, the amount that we're paying additional on the loans that we're basically taking out to cover these fuel increases. Or for that matter, paying 3 and 4% more or 40% more for fuel and energy than you had to pay prior. The dirty secret is Europe is still getting Russian oil, or for that matter, even gas, even if they have to get it through a third party. So not only did you take certain actions where you could not pull yourself away from, meaning oil, wheat, et cetera, you did that without even thinking about your own populations as you did it. It's deplorable. The idea that you're crying now about it is too late. Can't blame the U.S., can't blame Russia, these are choices that you yourselves made. Right here, Joseph Burrell, quote, our prosperity has been based on cheap energy coming from Russia. Russia gas, cheap and supposedly affordable, secure and stable. It has proved to not be the case, Burrell said in a speech at the EU. The diplomat added that the 27 bloc also relied too much on trade with China as well as Chinese investment and cheap goods. Quote, I think Chinese workers with their low salaries have done much better and much more to contain inflation than all the central banks put together, unquote. But think about what he's saying here. Europe and what it means to be Europe, this ability for us to deal with issues of climate, this ability of us to have these high ideals and the way that we look at the world. All of that was purely and completely dependent upon getting cheap or affordable Russian energy, or for that matter, getting goods from China. You decided to cut those ties. Nobody else decided that. You did. And when you get down to it, when you go to the very basics of it, there were multiple instances where none of this needed to take place. These were choices that all of you decided to make knowing full well the consequences of these choices. For example, you didn't have to expand NATO. This idea that NATO wasn't going to expand an inch to the east. Well, all of you understood, even when the Soviet Union failed, that this was a red line, that this notion of encirclement with a military organization would not be accepted by any sovereign nation. And yet, not only did you expand one country, you expanded all the way to the damn border. On the notion of knocking over Ukraine, look, when the Minsk agreements had taken place, you basically had a way out of this situation where the dumbass republics would have still been under the auspices of the Ukrainian government. None of you cared about pushing this or pushing the Ukrainian government to fulfill these agreements. And to make it even worse, Joe Biden, when he makes this point about, well, I had a billion dollars hoving over the Ukrainian government's head and I made them submit and fire the lawyer that was going to potentially incriminate my son. He didn't say that last part, but that's the last part's true. If Biden had the ability to have a fledgling, submissive Ukrainian government basically fold over and get rid of somebody that was part of their government. Are you telling me that Biden didn't have the ability, or for that matter, Europe didn't have the ability to push Ukraine into fulfilling the obligations of the Minsk agreements, something that would have basically removed this off the table as being a potential of conflict? What about putting, um, or NATO, going forward, basically saying that Ukraine was going to be part of NATO. What about that? All of them, again, understood this was a red line. What about putting NATO in the Constitution? What about knocking over the Ukrainian government, using neo-Nazis as a tip of a spear in order to put in a Russophobic government on the border 
of Russia. I'm saying that all of these things were redlined. None of these things would have been accepted by the United States if the situation was reversed. And every European leader that basically screamed to the hilt that, oh, Russia doesn't have security concerns. They're just making this up. They just want to take this. So they just want to take that. Putin is just a madman. All of them fully knew between at 3 a.m., between them and their God, that they would not accept the situation to which they were presenting. And that Moscow asking for security guarantees was not wrong. It was them trying to avoid what we're dealing with right now. I make the point that Europe made these choices. They made the choice to back the U.S. in all of these engagements, all of which they understood were very lines. William Burns, you don't even have to go back to when the Soviet Union fell. William Burns, and net means net, makes it very clear that, look, if the West continues to destabilize Ukraine and continue to push for this idea of NATO membership, there's going to be a conflict, potentially a civil war between the East and the West, something that Russia would have to get involved in that it doesn't want to get involved in. This was back in 2008. Eight. And it's not that William Burns, CIA director, is a psychic or a mystic. He's not sitting there with his legs crossed trying to get in touch with the universe. It's not that. He just looked at the world and said, hey, we are creating a conflict in this country. It is clear as day. It is obvious as a brimming day of sun or the sun in the middle of day. And yet, the only thing I can come to an assessment with is if they knew that back then when the Soviet Union fell, if they knew that back in 2008, and they continued to push in that direction, whether they were sleepwalking or whether they were going with active, conscious will and intent, irrelevant to the process. You still chose it. You still chose it. So now, when your country, your industries are shutting down, now when you don't know how you're going to keep the lights on, now when you're talking about rolling blackouts in Europe, now when governments are collapsing, whether Italian government, Draghi, just abandoned ship, basically rats abandoning the ship, knowing full well that there are going to be all sorts of difficulties that he don't want to be a part of. He didn't have to leave. He chose to leave. Boris Johnson governments collapsing with Liz Trust being the worst or the most disliked, out-of-touch prime minister that the country has ever had, and that the pound right now is collapsing and collapsing and dropping through the floor. Even if you want to go with the idea of the euro as a standard of health of a particular nation, meaning the strength of a currency being on some level commiserate with how strong or how well that nation is doing. The euro has fallen below the dollar. For God's sake, industries leaving Europe in order to come to the United States because they don't want to deal with the taxes or for that matter, they don't want to deal with the cost of energy. And Europe being in this weird spiral of not knowing how to extricate itself from the situation. Putin was standing there, almost like, you know, like they have Jesus in a church. The oil and the gas is still available if you want it. And you get the West blowing up the pipeline in order to prevent that reality from ever coming back to fruition. This stuff only benefits the U.S. And it's now where you're coming to this analysis of, wait a minute, it doesn't seem like we're taking equal pain in this endeavor. Now you've noticed that. You should have noticed that going all the way back several months ago where it was you that was taking the hits. Yes, the United States has not been absolved from all of the difficulties of this. The inflation numbers get that across. Or for that matter, even from the standpoint of the amount that we're now paying for fuel and everything else. But I'm making the point that there's a drastic difference in the difficulties that Europe are facing where they have no magical door to get out of in comparison to the U.S. And whether or not you decided to go this route because of the U.S., because of Joe Biden, irrelevant. Irrelevant. Your philosophical, ethical, and legal responsibilities are to the people of your countries. If those people are dying from being cold, that's on you. Those are choices that you made. If you can't light the Eiffel Tower, if your nightclubs are shutting down, if women are deciding to go into prostitution because they can't necessarily afford the bills from this or that, if your companies decide to leave and your countries get deindustrialized. And by the way, all of this is taking place 
in a capitalistic adversarial market. Meaning, you're not living in a world where all of your things are basically paid for. You're living in a world where you're in direct and complete competition with the other members of the world. And so when you have the Shanghai Cooperation Organization that's forming, we have the BRICS nations where countries that where your allies are trying to get in bed with your enemies, there is something demonstrably wrong with that. You've made poor choices. So as Burrell now understands, our prosperity was completely related to China and Russia. And now we've basically destroyed or tried to destroy those relationships at the behest of the U.S. and this sleepwalking, and I don't think it was sleepwalking at all, I think it was conscious intent behind it, of trying to destabilize, encircle, and for the most part, undermine Russia. All of these were your decisions and all of these decisions at this point, and meaning everything that you're basically dealing with is a direct result of things that you chose. These are your choices. It wasn't magic. It didn't just happen. All of this crying that I'm hearing from Europe right now, oh, the U.S. is taking it. These were your choices. It doesn't matter what the United States wanted. Yes, the U.S. is going to work in the U.S. interest. That's how we've always acted. But what about you? Do you have a responsibility to the people, your constituents, the people who put you in that office? Or is your responsibility to be at the behest of the United States? You're crying like children, as if you're supposed to get everything you want, regardless of what you do. That is not the way the world works. You now have multiple organizations that are trying to create a secondary axis of let's say economics that you now have to deal with. And you are now in this position where competitively you're out the running. Competitively you're out the running. The sun never sets on the British empire. I was looking at financial stuff yesterday where they make it a point that Britain, Britain is basically a rising economy. Britain, the UK used to own 51% of the world after the second world war. And now based on the decisions that they have basically made, they are now a rising and upcoming economy as opposed to being the masters of the world. Do you honestly believe that your choices for NATO, if they've landed you in this particular predicament, have been correct? An idea of crying over spilled milk now after everything has basically taken place. If you made all of these choices, all of that's on you. Don't blame the U.S. Don't blame Russia. Your failings are entirely and purely your own. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. Let's do this. Let's bring in our guests. We have the one and only Mark Sloboda. He's an international relations and security analyst. Mark, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing this morning? Jamal, Reese, Malik, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the show. Good it morning, is always Mark. an honor and a pleasure to have you. And I want to get in more in the Kerch Bridge, basically the Crimean Bridge attack that took place. Because Russia has released information now that goes into further detail on who they believe was responsible, how they believe it took place. I mean, look, it was sophisticated, right? You had a truck that was riding around for, I guess, a period of time. It had to be timed with a tanker that was nearby in order to maximize the damage from it. And you needed some way to infiltrate the country. Like you said, the guy who was driving the truck, it's not believed that he was in on it. This was just a random guy doing his job that they basically ended up killing. So you get, can you give us more details on what the government has basically released as happening around the bridge explosion? Yeah, um, they seem to have uncovered quite a lot in a fairly short period of time. They know the type of explosives, advanced explosive that, that was used. They knew that it was secreted between layers of a metallic film that helped, uh, first of all, um, 
uh, obscure its presence, security scans, as well as intensify the strength of the explosion when the it, it was uh, triggered. They know that it left Ukraine and uh, its next destination was Bulgaria. From Bulgaria, it arrived by sea in Georgia, from Georgia into Armenia, and then from Armenia uh, with the looser border rules uh, because uh, Armenia and Russia are part of the Eurasian Economic Union together. It was able to get through customs from Armenia into Russia with, with uh, relatively little checks. So once it was in Russia, a local was basically hired. Trucks were changed several times, and a local was hired to transport cargo that he picked up into Crimea to a fictitious company there. There, there is a chain of companies that were involved, so they were covering their tracks. And it is still, I think, the, the outstanding question I have seen is exactly how the timing was arranged so that this truck was crossing and detonated itself at the exact same time as a train uh, carrying fuel on an adjacent track. Uh, that That is, to me, signals a degree of, of oversight that might indicate uh, satellite participation. Basically, external influence in Ukrainian capabilities in order to launch an attack on Russian soil. Or let's say that other than Ukraine. Yeah, and that's what I'm getting at. That's that is problematic. I mean, from Russia's standpoint, I mean, this is even Putin, he accounted other terrorist attacks were, that were attempted on Russia's soil against even the power facilities um, in the country itself. Are these security breaches? I mean, these seem like very, um, let's say, problematic security lapses. Um, and look, I get it. It was sophisticated, right? So it's not that I'm um, being overly harping on this point, but it seems like there have been multiple terrorist attacks that have taken place on Russian soil at this point. Has there, have there been any countermeasures in order to try to deal with this kind of new reality of terrorism that's taking place from Ukraine and apparently other actors that are helping? Yeah, I'm, I'm, the FSB is uh, thwarting, you know, uh, they have just thwarted another two attacks in the past week. Um, and they've uh, let out the details involved of those. Um, these were... Uh, more, shall we say, sabotage attacks than 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 you know, duping someone into becoming a suicide, an unwilling right. suicide bomber, which I think definitely qualifies it as an act of political terror. Uh, but um, they've they've been fairly active, but we, I think it's necessary to be realistic about these things. Um, Russia is the largest country in the world with the world's largest borders. Um, and those who are being targeted and who, who would be planning and in many cases carrying out the attacks um, uh, in, look just like Russians and in, in many cases speak just like Russians for most of their cases. Um, and there are now several, there are, there were already Five million Ukrainians living in Russia, uh, many of them refugees uh, from eastern Ukraine, but there has always been about two or three million Ukrainians living and working in Russia. Uh, add another two million refugees on that. Um, and then the uh, influx from Crimea, where the majority of the population is 
ethnic Russian, but there are still, uh, you know, a significant number of ethnic Ukrainians as well. Um, and then we have, uh, you know, the more recent additions where uh, throughout Donetsk, Lugansk, Kherson and Zaporozhye, um, that uh, up to eight million more um, Ukrainian, former Ukrainian citizens are now Russian citizens. And that, of course, is a huge potential security issue where, you know, despite the majority having evidenced uh, their desire to uh, get away from the Kiev regime that seized power in Ukraine in 2014 and, and join Russia, there, of course, is a minority who do not feel that way. Right. Um, and uh, many of them might be, uh, you know, radically uh, um, disposed uh, to to taking action against that. So um, I, I think you have to be realistic. Yeah. So if, if they want to hit, they will hit eventually, sometime, somewhere. Basically, the country is so large and the border is so large and the number of people who are coming in and out, it's difficult to basically nail down everybody. It's almost yes. impossible to do so. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. I'm curious, what is the conversation that's taking place in Moscow? I mean, you're there on the ground. I'm curious on how they are regarding the attack, the terrorist attacks. I mean, I, of course, there was initially a, a, a great deal of anger um, and because I, I believe that, I mean, the, while certainly there are civilian and military logistic reasons, it was primarily symbolic, right? right? It, the bridge was viewed by both the regime in Kiev and Crimeans and Russians as symbolic of the unification of Crimea and Russia. So there was a great deal of anger over that. Um, I think th that public anger uh, was somewhat sated with uh, the response uh, by Russian missile strikes and, and drone strikes against Ukrainian infrastructure and also by the swiftness by with which transportation across the bridge was largely restored. I mean, it's, it's still at somewhat reduced capacity for automobile traffic, but right. even automobile traffic is passing through. Uh, so uh, that, that ameliorated uh, it somewhat. But I mean, I think there is now a sense definitely in the country, if it hadn't punched home already, that the country is is really whatever they may, the government may still choose to call the Russian military intervention, the special military operation, that Russia is in a real state of total war. Let me ask you with this. No, with no rules. Well, I want to get into the, the attacks because <laughs> in the West, breathlessly, have talked about Russia's running out of missiles, Russia's running out of um, artillery, Russia's running out of this, out of that. Well, for the most part, there's been a report that apparently came out, Alexander McCarris noted it, that if Russia wanted to, they could attack with 100 missiles every day for the next six months without rearming, basically just on previous stockpiles. Um, I want to get into that part, but also, can you go into the attacks that have taken place over the last three days? I don't know if the Russian, if the missile strikes have continued for the day, but what is, is, I get the feeling that these are more than punitive. I mean, is this a new... Um, tenor towards the conflict? Or is this a probing attack in order to figure out the areas that need to be decimated if the war goes to total? Yeah, okay. So, I mean, the first target was uh, the Ukrainian intelligence service, the SPU, which Russia blames uh, for the attack and, and which they have openly claimed that <laughs> in the Ukrainian press that they were responsible for the attack. So uh, there was a number of buildings, facilities, uh, you know, um, of the SPU that were that were hit around the country in Kiev and elsewhere. Secondly, uh, what was targeted was the infrastructure 
of the country. And and first up was the electrical infrastructure. And the way this was targeted was um, primarily transformer substations, 330 uh, kilovolts uh, substations for the first day and uh, 750 uh, the second day. And as a result of that, the Russian government says that 50% of, of Ukraine's electricity. Now, there is a very tactical reason for doing this is most troop movements uh, in Ukraine and, and in Russia, it must be said, are done via train because uh, the roads simply don't have the capacity and the extra fuel that would be consumed and moving, you know, often not directly through small roads. It, it's just not practical. It's just not practical. So the first idea is to hit uh, pre- prevent that transfer of troops. So it is is a uh, a war of logistics, if you will. And as a result of that, the uh, if you'll see that the Ukrainian offensives have pretty much ground to a halt. Right. The uh, following days, the offensives in Kherson and uh, in uh, northern Donetsk, uh, Lugansk area from Krasny Lamont. Uh, and the third, following up on that, was uh, some uh, railroad junctions as well. And I think that you will not, I think there is definitely a new phase of the war in targeting as well, and infrastructure is now obviously a legitimate target. I mean, the Kiev regime, it, it preceded, of course, the Crimean Bridge. They had already been attacking um, uh, electrical supplies uh, in Donetsk for eight years, uh, in Crimea, um, and in Belgorod, in, in, in mainland Russia, if you will, from uh, Kharkov, uh, where, where they're very close to the border there with artillery shelling. Uh, so this is a, a quid pro quo. The precedent has been set, and Russia will respond, and in a bigger and uh, much more um, effective way. Uh, but I don't think you'll see quite the intensity. I think there will be an assessment of what was done and what will be necessary to, to continue. And I think we'll see a switch to a lot of that being carried out, not just by uh, caliber cruise missile strikes, but with the far cheaper and more dis- disposable Shahid uh, drones uh, as well. And I think part of Part of the targeting yesterday was more devoted to seed suppression, taking out remnants of the Kiev regime's air defense network, what what little is left. And I think that has lent some urgency to suddenly the West saying, oh, air defense, suddenly we're going to provide air defense uh, and scrambling. And then, you know, quietly in the third and fourth article, and it'll be admitted up. Actually, we don't really have any air defense we can give. Uh, or not much, anyway. You yeah. know, a handful. Especially um, given the time, think, yeah. I think it is quite noble of the German military to denote, uh, to devote their their iris uh, networks. I understand it's a pretty good uh, a piece of gear. Some of Russia's are better. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, two of them, uh, even four of them within a few months are not going to uh, change the course of this war. Yeah. yeah. They're not networked, right. They're individual units. I'm, I'm sure they're good units, but you know, without a networked layered air defense, their, 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 their effectiveness is drastically reduced, but they're giving them to the Kiev regime before the German military even has one of them. Oh, that's so, <laughs> that's so pathetic. Mark, we need to take a break because we need to kind of organize um, the show and get it on Sputnik. But we're going to come back with you. If you guys are listening to Fault Lines, my name is Jamal Thomas, Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. 
Minds. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. We continue to be joined with the one and only Mark Sloboda. He's an international relations and security analyst. Um, Mark, I want to get back into it for a moment. Is it frustrating to you, as it is for me, to... Oh, let me ask this question this way. If indeed that this campaign was opened up with the missile strikes going after infrastructure and everything else, would Ukraine have still been able to carry on with their offensive in order to take Kharkov, or for that matter, some of the areas that they were able to take during the um, um, during the, the offensive? Yeah, I, I think the entire course of the war would have changed. I think it would have been much harder for uh, the Kiev regime to mobilize. It would have been much harder for them to get Western arms into the country and then direct it all the way across the country, particularly to the east where the front is. It it would have uh, changed so many things. So um, the decision not to do that in the beginning of the conflict has been momentous. And I think that people will be questioning the wisdom of the self-limitations of the special military operation for the first eight months of the this conflict and the reason why that was done, um, I suspect it was to signal to NATO the limited intentions and that a a desire to for you know signal that they wanted the West to return to the uh, I mean they don't really grant Kiev any agency but to right. signal to the U.S. to return to the negotiating table on the terms that Russia set um, and you know the first. Kiev regime military, you know, the one they built up for eight years with NATO help, it, 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 it effectively ceased to exist, even with the limited uh, special military operation that went in. Uh, but then it became a war against all of NATO's military and econo- economic might, essentially, and the Kiev regime forcibly conscripting the entire country uh, into the war. And uh, obviously, at that point, uh, you know, The Kremlin, however, belatedly realized that it needed to up its game and that the the possibility of limiting escalation was was far gone. I think there are many who say that a belief that they could limit the escalation uh, coming from NATO was naive. I'm one of those. But, uh, you know, what happened uh, is what happened and and anything, you know, scenarios for, you know, how far things would have gone otherwise or or what if scenarios and, you know, aren't really uh, constructed. It doesn't help. I'm curious, though, do you think it had anything to do with Russia signaling to allies? Like meaning all things been equal, for example, either Russia, I'm sorry, either China, India or other countries that I mean, look, they were able to give oil or, or sell oil to various other countries. And like I said, three-fourths of the world didn't necessarily get involved in this. I mean, is it does it have to do with a certain level of signaling to the world in and of itself? Like, look, this is a limited um, operation. We're doing this because of NATO, et cetera. Meaning it's almost like they're carrying out the operation in order to make an argument that this isn't about a total war. It's about security concerns very specifically and escalating it in order for the world to kind of see that the escalation is going in accordance with NATO's um, aggression. Does it make sense? Like, meaning they didn't necessarily want to go into this kind of total war mindset right off the bat. The idea was it escalated as forces escalated against them, even though look, you can say it was naive. But was that on some level necessary to get the world or three fourths of the world on its side outside of NATO countries? 
Well, I mean, on their side, if you want to, you know, say participating. It may be too strong. I just mean standing out of it. Yeah. Yeah, staying out of it. Yeah. Okay. So that is a possibility. I'm I'm not going to rule that out. Um, however, I anecdotally, I have talked to a number of uh, friends in China and India and a few other countries that uh, many are, are former uh, government uh, and military or, or even a few current. And their reaction was, uh, you know, actually that China and India are wondering why Russia didn't go in big. Oh, harder. Begin with. <laughs> and that, that yeah. has that has actually caused more damage by dragging it out longer economic in economic terms. And, and they had started to wonder whether the Kremlin had the political will to see this through. Uh, Hopefully now those fears will be assuaged. So I think China and India, many of the the governments behind closed doors, uh, you know, particularly with China, with India, it's, it's more about balancing um, as I think it has become like that for Saudi Arabia, but but China definitely sees Russia as a strategic partner, and they see Russian success in this as necessary for their own security, and, and you know the inevitable conflict between China and the U.S. over Taiwan. Hey, Mark, uh, thank you for joining us. This is Malik here. Just wanted to get your thoughts on this. On yesterday, the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin basically said that the Pentagon hasn't seen any indications that Putin has any intention on using nuclear weapons. This is coming after Biden's Armageddon comments, you know, that he was roundly criticized for. What do you make of the, is this a good cop, bad cop sort of thing? Or is Biden just winging it out there on his own and don't know what he's doing? Because it's kind of strange that the Pentagon is saying that they have no indications of this, which, of course, that is true. But then Biden is saying something. And and, and uh, Lloyd himself, I just found it, Lloyd himself said that nuclear saber rattling is reckless and irresponsible. So in light of Biden's own comments that he tried to then um, backtrack, what do you make of what is it that Biden is doing? Because his Pentagon apparently does not agree with him. Okay, so this this whole thing was sparked by comments that Putin made in a speech where he said that Russia would use any systems it had available to defend Russia and his country and its people. That was it, right? And that was, it was preceded by comments both before and after that made it clear that that was in the context. He said that he had received threats from Western, high-ranking Western politicians that they could use nuclear weapons on Russian troops in Ukraine. So he didn't specify nuclear weapons or anything. He didn't say anything about that. He said, sounds like what an American president would say, that we would use everything at our disposal to go after those who attack us. <laughs> yes, it was a very normal. I mean, how many times have you heard everything is on the table? Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, no, I mean, this was quite obviously an orchestrated demonization and disinformation campaign uh, to to, uh, you know, spin uh, Putin's statements all out of context 
you know, for, for, you know, for, for the point of, you know, shoring up that Russia is an evil, insane, you know, uh, led by an evil, insane dictator, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, you know, anything we do, you know, we, ha we have to stop him uh, and any sacrifice, even if everyone in Europe has to stop taking showers and heating their homes, you know, it's. They can take them, uh, Mark. They're just cold. <laughs> just cold showers. But they can still take them. I have to question whether there's not the possibility that there is also some narrative framework construction here that part. for for the uh, possibility, the potential at least, if the conflict turns for you know south, say in a year and a half, and Kiev looks to be taken uh, for a false flag, uh, because both the Polish foreign minister. Uh, the uh, former U.S. General Petraeus um, and some other statements coming out of the U.S. Uh, since have made clear that if very specifically, if Russia used a tactical nuclear weapon uh, on the battlefield uh, in Ukraine, something which is against Russian doctrine, and they've got no reason uh, to suggest this other, you know, than than their own. I don't know. I consider it projectionism more than anything else that they would then attack Russian forces directly in Ukraine. And I think that, that there is a possibility that that is laying the framework, if not to send all of NATO, which would be more politically problematic, let's say U.S. and Polish forces into West, uh, uh, into West Ukraine to create a safe zone, right? Yeah. Uh, th that is something that down the line is a possibility. And, you know, when you're laying out a possibility like that, you, you have to start providing some construction for it to be done. Um, and the Pentagon has been working for years to develop, and they then deployed what they call more usable tactical battlefield nuclear weapons specifically for use against Russia and China. And we have to remember we're dealing with a not entirely rational actor in Kiev in the form of the uh, comedian Zelensky, who has called for nuclear first strikes on Russia and who has been attacking, shelling and suicide drone bombing uh, what was his own nuclear power plant in Zaporozhye for three months now in an evident attempt to create some type of dirty bomb incident, which would probably have about the same effect. Uh, to draw outside powers into the conflict. So those are the type of things that I worry about. Yeah, I, that crossed my mind too. I mean, think about the pretext for Vietnam. Think about the pretext for um, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. They basically led to the thing, hey, they have weapons of mass destruction and then coming up with the construction in order to basically create a pretext in order to go in. Find, find me a conflict in U.S. history that has not been presaged by a a false flag or WDMD incident. There's not too many of them. You don't expect them to attack somebody nakedly, do you? <laughs> like, you have to come up with a reason. Like, you have to create some pretext for your country. You can't be naked when you attack. You can't be naked. I mean, because all things have been equal. If you think of the U.S. media, anything the U.S. does, by definition, is good, even though we may make mistakes. So this idea of being, you know, carnivorous, when you're going after somebody because there's something that you want. Oh, well, you can't necessarily say that openly and nakedly on the air. Like, for example, Jake Tapper. Jake Tapper was having a conversation with Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard tells him, Jake, we're supporting terrorists in Syria, Jake. Jake Tapper, oh, no, no, we, we never heard that. The government says it's not true. Now, it's like 
it's they don't they can't reconcile this idea that your country does things that are just utterly grotesque and they do them for reasons that go beyond this idea of just helping and love and light and justice and everything else. When they came up with that idea of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and Joe Biden kept saying it, nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons, tactical nukes, this or that. He even went so far as to say chemical weapons. Nobody even used the term chemical weapons. Yeah, it makes it disconcerting when you have, like you said, Zelensky talking about a preemptive nuclear attack on the country and these guys are blowing up or trying to attack Zabrosia nuclear power plant. And even Putin was talking about um, attacks um, on um, domestic energy centers in Russia itself. That looks problematic, to put it mildly, and it does look like they're trying to create some kind of, I guess, framework where they could say, and keep in mind, everything that has happened, they said Russia did it. So whether it's Russia bombed their own Nord Stream 2, Russia bombed their own power plant, Russia bombed their own facilities, killing their own people for whatever particular reason, they would come out with the snuff. So is it really that far-fetched to say that the U.S., if something happened like that, something blew up and it was a dirty bomb, would those countries turn around and say, okay, Ukraine did that, or... Would they do just like what they said with all of this other nonsense? Oh, yeah, Russia just keeps doing this stuff to themselves. That's my issue, right? That's what concerns me. That's disconcerting to me. Let, let me let me quote from Colin Powell's memoirs. I think we have to remember that the U.S. is the only country to have used nuclear weapons uh, in war and, and unleash them on cities full of people, actually. Um, this is a conversation between Shaney and uh, uh, Colin Powell. Um, uh, about Iraq and um, uh, 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 it, it little highlighted parts here where Colin Powell said, let's not even think about nukes. Um, you know, we're not going to let that genie loose. And Shaney said, of course not. But take a look to be thorough and just out of curiosity. Take a look to be thorough. <laughs> That's not a curiosity. They basically researched eh, what's the possibility of using nuclear weapons here, right? And um, so um, what that says to me um, is that if anyone was, uh, you know, prepared to use nuclear weapons, tactical or otherwise in Ukraine, uh, it's probably not Russia. It's probably wow. the people who have used and thought of it before and not too long ago. Hey, Mark, do, do you think that this, you, you mentioned Cheney, you can't be talking about the same Dick Cheney who said that Donald Trump was, what is it, the greatest threat to democracy in <laughs> oh, American history or something like that. When he came out, he was supporting um, Liz Cheney and he made that video supporting his daughter and called Donald Trump the greatest threat in democracy. People forget who Dick Cheney is. He is like neocon on steroids. And that is the history. That's his history. Donald Trump may be Darth Clown, but but <laughs> Dick Cheney is Darth Vader. I mean, let's be clear about. Didn't it. they call him that? Wasn't that like his nickname? Yes, Darth, that Darth Vader. That was it. That's what they called him. <laughs> that was his nickname. Let me ask you this. This is something that just came out. It says the NATO bloc will soon launch a 10-year plan to rebuild NATO's defense industry, hoping to phase out Soviet-era weapons in favor of Western technology. Here's another part. It says officials from NATO and Ukraine are set to meet next week to discuss, quote, a long-term commitment, unquote, to revitalize Kiev's military-industrial complex following months of fighting with Russia. Quote, we'll be looking to defense planning requirements to get Ukraine fully interoperable with NATO, unquote, the unnamed defense official said, quote, it's about shifting away from Soviet era equipment to NATO compatible Western equipment. So basically they, this war on some level started because of this nonsense with NATO. Basically in what, 2008 offering Ukraine saying, we're going to get these guys a NATO membership. And even when Russia kept saying, say you won't be part of NATO, they still wouldn't do it. Basically they were going to get Ukraine to be part of NATO in a de facto way without necessarily having it in, let's say, ex, uh, um, 
earnest, you know, in, in, in literal terms. What is this going to do? I mean, they don't even know what Ukraine is going to look like at the end of this conflict. I, I consider this, I applaud their optimism. Right? I mean, <laughs> right, right. Uh, optimism's not something I do very well. So, you know, good for you for thinking ahead and, and you know, looking on the sunny side. Um, I'm not quite so sure that there's going to be a regime in Kiev within a, within that period of time for you to realize your long-term plans. But hey, when they sniff potential money for the military-industrial complex, you know, they're like, you know, it's it's like flies on feces. It's astonishing. It's like this country is being carved up. They've lost 20% of their territory to an expedition force working with the Donbass republics. The entirety at this point, those territories are, are Russian territories. And Russia's going to respond to them in kind. And these guys are like, yeah, within the next 10 years, we're going to do X and Y. Tomorrow, think of the potential profit. <laughs> right, right. Joseph Burrell, I want to get to him for a moment, the top EU diplomat, one of the most clownish people who have ever walked the face of the planet Earth. And the level of ego and... and narcissism of these people is astonishing to me. So right here, he says, quote, our prosperity has been based on cheap energy coming from Russia. Russia gas, cheap and supposedly affordable, secure and stable. It's been um, proven not to be the case. He made his point in a statement. He also said, I think the Chinese workers, oh, right here also, added that the 27-member bloc also relied too much on Chinese goods um, because they were cheap goods. Quote, I think Chinese workers with their low salaries have done much better and more to contain inflation than all central banks have put together. But understand what he's saying for the moment. Basically that Europe, what Europe is and how Europe frames itself and sees itself, meaning these kind of high ideals and everything else, were entirely and completely related and directly related to being able to get their hands on energy at a certain price or for them out of goods from China at a certain price. And without any thought of that at all, they went into this harebrained scheme with the U.S. believing that right now we're going to be able to fulfill NATO's objectives of encircling and potentially undermining the Russian government by A, bogging it down into a war, but B, also going after it economically. Neither one of those things worked. And at no point did any of them come to a conclusion of thinking to themselves, okay, what is going to reasonably and re realistically happen the moment that we go after these things that have basically made Europe what it is? I, I found that to be amazing reading that. It's like there's such a disconnect between the reality of what Europe is and what it's capable of versus what they're doing now and how they see themselves. It's very weird. What's your take on that? Just even in the long-term geopolitical context. So I've been saying those exact words since March, that European prosperity for the last few decades has been due primarily due to a cheap, a relatively cheap, reliable supply of energy from Russia. And to hear those words come out of, of uh, Burrell's mouth were, were kind of, uh, it, it was kind of uh, bittersweet, uh, I think, for me. To, yes, <laughs> yeah, a little bit of shade and proud there, yeah, to say that. And then, uh, you know, I, follow, I, I talked about this, this yesterday on a debate on CGTN. I saw him. Good job, by the way. Put that guy down like nobody's business. I, yeah, I, I hate to, I said, I hate to say this. Those decades of prosperity are now at an end. And you have, you know, as Victor Orban said, it's not a matter of the blowback from your sanctions. It's not shooting yourself in the foot. Well, Victor Orban said, it's like we shot ourselves in the lungs. <laughs> I always say genitals, but lungs work too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that is uh, exactly the situation. And just to make sure that you that they couldn't have any second or even right third there. thoughts, 
They then blew up the Nord Stream pipelines, and it looks like there may have been sa uh, sabotage uh, in the last couple days against the Brotherhood, the Druzhba, uh, sorry, Friendship Pipeline, Druzhba Pipeline through uh, Bel uh, Belarus and Poland brings oil to Germany, uh, and they had depressurization and massive links. And uh, even the president of Serbia came right out and said, yep, that's sabotage. Wow. Uh, so they, they, you're not allowed to have any second thoughts. There is no go. Even if there was political will to go back, Couldn't even go if back. the conflict ended they're they're severing even the physical capability of going back. They have basically taken your back to the dark ages for the foreseeable future. And I don't mean it literally in a sense. Yeah. I, I, and that's not my words. That's the words out of the Wall Street Journal. Well, even Reuters. Reuters was like, look, the issue is not immediate. It was like, if, even if, I think they used the term like, even if they could deal with the energy concerns this year, next year is also an issue. Yeah, next year will be worse. It will be worse. They won't have anything left by the end of this winter uh, in storage tanks. And, um, you know, they're paying four times as much uh, for American LNG. And then they're like... Friends don't charge each other four times as much for we're gas. We're supposed like, to be in this together. <laughs> right, yeah, we, right. we're all, yeah, sure. Okay. All right. And meanwhile, I mean, I believe that they will manage to scrape together enough energy to, to keep the majority of their people warm and so forth. But their industry is no longer globally competitive. And instead, it's Asia that is now getting that same relatively cheap, reliable energy from Russia and their already more competitive economies just became that much more competitive. And the U.S. is benefiting out of this because a lot of those European businesses, again, as reported by the Wall Street Journal, are, are leaving Europe, uh, the, their biggest manufacturers, and moving to the U.S. where the price of energy is at least somewhat cheaper. So what does this mean? I mean, like in a global context, you have multiple organizations that are, and I love the fact that you says competitive, because all things being equal, we're talking about a global economy, right? And so you get brick nations, where you get countries that are supposed to be allies to the United States, cozying up with enemies of the United States. What I mean by that is you get a China, an organization led by China and Russia, and you get Turkey, you get Saudi Arabia, both of these groups basically saying, hey, we want options. We want new options. Like, yeah, 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 we're still your friends, we're still buddies and everything else, but we want new options. You get the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Basically, you get multiple organizations that are lining up outside of this kind of um, hegemonic um, Western um, situation that is basically challenging that. Do you think it's, this is a situation where the world is looking at this thing to ourselves, here's our chance for something else. Here's our chance for something new. So, yeah, we're not getting involved in this nonsense. You got yourselves into it. Get yourself out of it. Sure. I mean, this is a, a global watershed, a pivot point, and we will all look back at this and talk about how much this was a, a high watermark that, that, that marked a, a real change in, in the global order. And they, everyone admits that. I mean, everyone says this is a fight about the global order. So one way or another, uh, this will, I, I suspect it won't be quite that clear cut because things never are. But uh, this is a, a definite uh, sea change uh, uh, going forward. Um, and Europe is going to be more a vassal state, more reliant and weaker compared to the U.S. than they have ever been before. I mean, look at what's happening to the euro and the pound oh, yes. in compared to the dollar. I mean, that's decades of 
that prosperity suddenly, you know, reversing itself. And there are neocons. There are plenty of people in Rand and so forth that look at Europe and say that's good because they were a potential geopolitical competitor to us somewhere down the line. And now they're weaker and leashed to us more than ever. That's the way those people think. Do you think Nord Stream 2 was the uh, what's the word, instigator for all of this? Like, yes, all things being equal, they didn't necessarily want the transit fees going um, to Ukraine. Meaning, if Nord Stream 2 would have came on, they, Ukraine would have um, forego the transit fees. But do you think that a lot of this had to do with this idea that, okay, you're supposed to be connected to us. Meaning, Europe is supposed to be connected to the United States. And if you're in a situation, kind of what Trump was saying, it's like, well, wait a minute. How is Russia an enemy or competitor where you're basically relying upon it for energy or for food or for X or Y? Same thing with China. How are these guys, you're supposed to be attached to us. And so any kind of putting on the Nord Stream 2 adds that much more of a connectivity between Europe and between Russia. And from the U.S. standpoint, they hate it. Meaning they hate this idea that they're getting energy from Russia in this way when these guys are supposed to be geopolitical competitors. Uh, do you think that a lot of this was precipitated based on the creation of Nord Stream 2 and their want to basically prevent it from taking effect? Because they were able to basically, meaning they created a situation where they could basically bomb those pipelines without necessarily taking flack for bombing the pipelines. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, it brought it to a head, but I think they were just as much against Nord Stream 1 and, and previous pipelines and it has just now come to this level. I want to draw your attention to a book that was written in 1987 before the Soviet Union broke apart that was preaching against the construction of the original pipelines going across from the Soviet then Soviet Union through Poland and Ukraine to Europe. Um, uh, it's called Ally versus Ally. America, Europe, and the Siberian pipeline crisis, talking about how these pipelines are a threat to the U.S. Do you know who the author of that book was? No, who? Anthony J. Blinken. No way! Yes, it's on Amazon. Go ahead and take a look at Ally versus Ally, America, Europe, and the Siberian pipeline crisis. Wow, that is amazing. That is amazing. So this was always an issue, basically. How dare you get fuel from them when you can get it from us at four times higher and you can just be putting money into American coffers. Wow. So this has always been an issue. Basically, the energy consumption of Europe and how they get their energy and everything else. Meaning, yes, Russia was always an enemy. However, if we could put a knife in Europe from their ability to basically get cheap energy and be a competitor, then so be it. That's amazing. The book examines U.S. relations with the member nations of NATO, explains U.S. opposition to the original Siberian pipeline project, and assesses European willingness to ignore U.S. objections. That's amazing. Things don't change. That's amazing. I mean, and right now they're flipping out over Saudi Arabia. We must punish Saudi Arabia. Why? Because they took action that was in their best interest. And it's like, what? Why do you think that all of these countries are going to bend over backwards in order to help you when you get yourself into a situation? It's astonishing that they think that. Like they're supposed to hurt themselves in order for U.S. interests. That's astonishing. Mark, I always appreciate talking to you, man. Oh, one last question. You were making the point that it was going to be several weeks of bad news. Do you still think that way? Or at this point, the offensive has basically stopped, meaning they've, they've shot their load. They have no more bullets in that gun. I, I'm still keeping my eye on Zaporozhia. Uh, there's some 40,000 troops gathered there. 
Uh, and they have been launching more commando raids across the reservoir trying to take the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. They were blown up in the water again, but that was probably just another probing attack. The bigger ones are bigger to come, and there's a land uh, force as well. There's still 40,000 troops uh, north, uh, just north of the Lugansk border. Uh, they're not just going to sit there. Yeah, I, I, I think that there is tough fighting ahead for Russian forces and probably some withdrawals. Okay, Mark, always appreciate you, man. I mean, your analysis and your knowledge of this stuff is always impressive to me. Mark Sloboda, he's an international relations and security analyst. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Sloboda One. You can check his YouTube channel out at Real Politic with Mark Sloboda. On Twitter, he has the debate that he was talking about on CGTN. Definitely watch that. Mark did a phenomenal job in that debate. Um, you can also find him on Facebook at facebook.com slash Gramsci. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas, and I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All right, I am just going to read this as it is. Stocks sink as inflation data comes in hot. It comes in hot. Has it ever come in cold? A key measure of inflation came in hotter than investors had hoped, giving the Fed more leeway to hike rates to historic levels. Dow futures tumble one in 400 points or 1.5%. And right here, latest inflation data shows American continue to be punished, punished by rising prices. American consumers continue to be punished by high prices despite lower gas costs and unprecedented action from the Federal Reserve to tame inflation, according to data released Thursday by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Inflation rose by 8.2% in September, a slower increase than 8.3% in August, according to Consumer Price Index, which measures the changes in prices for a basket of consumer goods and services. Economists have projected the pace increase would slow to 8.1% last month. On a monthly basis, overall consumer prices increased by 0.4% from August meaning we are still taking the hit as a direct result of what the Biden administration is doing. And this is after Biden is basically on telling Tapper, I don't know if there's going to be a recession. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't think there would be. I mean, it may be a soft landing. I'm not hearing a soft landing stuff right here. Bank of America. Bank of America warned the note to clients that was seen by CNN. The pace of U.S. job growth is expected to be roughly cut in half during the fourth quarter of this year, according to the media outlet, according on Monday. A pressure, as pressure, from the rate hikes mounts, non-farm payrolls will begin shrinking in early 2023, translating into a loss of 175,000 jobs a month during the first quarter, the bank said. Charts reportedly published by Bank of America suggest that the job losses will continue through much of 2023. Quote, the premise is a harder landing rather than a softer one, unquote, the head of U.S. economics at Bank of America, Michael Gappin, told CNN. So the president of the United States has been telling us for the last year that inflation is temporary, transitory. It's only going to go away. There's nothing to, not, nothing to see here. That's not a big deal. They told us that for months, for months. They told us that. And now the president is telling Tapper in that um, um, pillow fight of an interview, if you even want to call it a pillow fight, 
that inflation, oh, this, we're not going to see a recession. What's the big deal? 175,000 jobs lost a month as a direct result of your failed foreign policy efforts? Are you insane? All of these people are going to have to deal with this. And that's not even dealing with the issues of food or for the matter energy, which is kept off the books on this. And I'm going to and, and I can, I'm going to read something else. And an even more concerning development that suggests underlying underlying inflationary pressures in the economy remain strong. Core prices would strip out the more volatile measures of food and in energy climbed 0.6 percent in September from the previous month. From the previous year, core prices jumped 6.6%, the fastest since 1982. And not including energy or food. Right. Think about that. Which means that the reason they don't put energy food. Yeah, we have to take that out because the number will be so dramatically higher if we put it in. Think about what we're saying for the moment. That's people who are going to the store, people. You have people who are basically just trying to live their lives. This I just is wanna, bread and butter. Bread and butter. Yeah. I just go to work. I have sex with this particular female. Not invested I, in anything. Yeah, you're just living your life. I play my Xbox in the evenings. I just want to live a decent, regular life without causing harm to anybody else. And my life has been dramatically now worse because of the money that I need to put out in order to pay for just basic goods. If I want to buy french fries, if I want to buy steakums, if I want to buy Kool-Aid, all of that stuff now is much higher that you are basically paying for than you would have paid for before. Why? It wasn't magic. Joe Biden decided that he wanted to have some kind of geopolitical escapade by knocking over the government of Ukraine and then using it as a tip of a spear. And all of them are now shot, shot. And we're not making this up. No, we're not what making I, this up. What I find up. the most interesting though is I don't really have a history of Jamie Dimon ever coming out with economic news yeah. and saying, I mean, I don't have a recollection of him doing that. Now, when I worked for Congress, I remember a hearing where he came in and he was talking about this one thing that you guys have to get control over it. You got to do this is 2013. You got to do something. It's it's dangerous. It's going to be used to fund the black market. And if you don't get control over it, it's going it, to it's just going to be horrible. It's going to be used to pay for prostitution and the dark web and all this stuff. <laughs> right. And I'm sitting in the hearing and I'm like, I don't know what he's talking about, <laughs> but I need to get involved with whatever this is. And lo and behold, he was talking about crypt, uh, Bitcoin. Crypt, yeah, crypto. And so he was talking about Bitcoin back in 2013. And that was, I mean, but even that was a hearing. Right. So I don't have a recollection of him coming forward and being the, you know, almost economist the sky is well, falling. Well, this one is Bank well, of America. Sometime. No, like, Jamie during Dimon the Obama, is Chase. Yeah, during the, yeah, Ob- yes, yes. So yeah, during the Obama a- administration, he did, because he, he was kind of consulted. every so often, yeah. Yeah, so they did consult with him on some things like that, but... You can't deny the obvious. Now? Doesn't matter what Janet Yellen says. Yeah. This whole notion that, well, no. It's not going to be that bad. It's going to be soft He's landing. literally saying the sky is falling. It's but it's not just him. Very, very serious. A stark panic warning. I mean. But it's not just him. Bank yeah, of America. I mean, Bank of America, Citigroup. Citigroup yeah. was talking about 18.6% inflation in the UK. I mean, and that's before trust took over where the pound basically collapsed. I mean, I guess my point is. None of this needed to be as exaggerated as it is. Right. And you had the situation where they didn't need to knock over the government of Ukraine. They didn't need to have this economic war. They didn't need to do any of this stuff. If you remember, Russia was begging them, please come to some kind of security arrangement. They wouldn't do it. They just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And now they're shocked, chagrined that all of a sudden all of this is happening. Here's the dirty secret. And I guess it's not a secret. Um, the Fed chair... 
Powell has basically said, look, I am limited in what I can do in regards to this issue of inflation that is coming from the geopolitical events. And so his thing is, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to try to constrain the economy, constrain how much money the government is spending and everything else. But if you have no control over the politics, meaning he can't control gas costs. Right. He has no power over that. If gas goes to $300 a barrel, Powell is neutered for all intents and purposes. So not only are we constraining the economy, basically he's cutting rates or he's, yeah, increasing rates. He's doing this while simultaneously inflation is still going up. You're getting both, the worst of both worlds. Mm -hmm. Blame Biden. This is on Biden. Let's be very clear. Nobody told him to do this. And yeah, Europe decided to jump off the bridge with them, but all things been equal. It was the U.S. that was pushing these guys and to make these sort of decisions of, hey, we're going to destroy them economically. It's only going to take two months. And I can, and this is something I can just talk about the BS, whether yeah. it's a Democrat or a Republican in office. You know, um, it, immediately when the gas prices started, this, yeah, when the gas prices started to trickle down yeah. a little bit, you saw Kareem Jean Pierre and many other Democrats talking but about see? it's because of the Biden's policies yeah. that we're focused on this or that. He was just releasing the energy reserves. When uh, Peter, <laughs> can't think of his name, Peter from the Fox News, asked, Peter Ducey asked Jean Pierre, um, I think it was last week or the week before. Same thing. Okay, so gas prices are going up now. Is the Biden administration yeah. responsible for this? Of course, no. no. That's Putin's fault. Well, no. There are <laughs> no. geopolitical factors because you know gas prices going up. What's Putin's fault? Yes, that's what they want to say. Right. It's that's Putin's literally fault. what. But when said. it goes down, it's Biden's um <laughs> a, a, his, his brilliance. Nonsense. He is using strategic oil reserve in a way to try to mitigate the damage before the midterm elections. That's why he's so angry at Saudi Arabia. Let's be very clear. His thought was, Saudi Arabia can help us out. You can raise them in December. I mean, even then people, they were like, hey, you can raise them in December if, if you do another check and you find that you need to do it. Why December, Joe Biden? Midterms. Midterms. Because he knows that the public dealing... Look, it's one thing to have a geopolitical issue that the public is not involved in. Fair enough. I mean, you can wage your secret wars. You can send your troops into Syria to steal their oil. You can do all of that stuff. As long as it's not affecting the public, the public is blissfully unaware. They can go about their life. They can do their jobs. They can play their Xbox. They're fine. The moment that that stuff starts having negative consequences where people are feeling it every time they put out a dollar and it's like my dollar is going less or I have to buy this particular product and that product is that much more expensive and I'm paying less for things. Oh, they're going to feel it every time they go to the gas tank. That is a tax. When that gas price goes up, that is a tax. That is not a tax you can ignore. That is not a tax you can get around. If you need to get to work, you need to get to work. Full stop. He knows it. So, so um, big, big man Biden, what do you make of his? I don't know if you saw his comments. So he's now saying that the um, OPEC plus yeah. alliance, that there will be consequences. But think about that. Actions. Like consequences what do you mean for what? <laughs> you mean for them making a choice that was in their best interest? Like... Suffering and repercussions. What are you going to do, bro? Suffering and repercussions. Yeah. Like, what are you going to do? Well, I think the major major question is, why? Why? Well, that too. What do you think they did wrong? (laughs) Well, they, they, I told them to, to, you know, increase the cut. They made me look like a wimp. Yeah. That's what they did. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, so you wanted them to basically make a choice that was not in their best interest Mm -hmm. for the U.S. behest. Yes, that's exactly what I wanted. So you thought they were a client state. Yes, that's what I thought. And you mean that's even after you call the guy's dad and you try to make up a pariah? Yes. And what does this say for this idea that Biden was going to recalibrate our relationship with Saudi Arabia? Well, he did. <laughs> he did. He literally did. 
because <laughs> this wasn't happening under Trump. He literally came in. That guy's a pariah. I'm gonna, you know, isolate that guy from the community. They debone Khashoggi. This is why they hate us around the world yeah. because of Donald Trump. Yeah, <laughs> not so much, bro. Not so much. All things being equal, look, if you want to look at it, it may be multiple things. Saudi Arabia may be taking a pint of flesh from Biden because of all that nonsense that they were saying before. But look, there are multiple, I think Elijah said this, there are multiple nations that are part of OPEC. It wasn't just Saudi Arabia by itself making a choice. It was multiple nations saying, yes, this is what we want to do. So what, you're going to punish all of those nations when they do that? No. The reality of it is Saudi Arabia and OPEC look at oil and gas, or let's say gas, oil, as their domain, mm-hmm. meaning they're literally a cartel. Whether you like it, hate it, you think there should be cartels, that's secondary to the point. They're literally a cartel. From their mindset, the United States is trying to put a price cap idea and trying to control and force down the price of oil and gas because of the situation they got themselves in from the standpoint of Europe. Why would a cartel that looks at themselves as being, you know, self-oriented, of course, but look at themselves as being a controlling factor on this thing, allow, want, or be okay with the United States basically trying to use some kind of sanctions mechanism in order to cut down the price that they themselves are collecting on gas oil. Why would they allow that? Why would they be okay with that? Why, for that matter, would that even be in their best interest? Right. You may be upset about it. You may think, oh, oh, MBS is trying to, you know, make my life miserable because I called them all those bad names. You yeah. say all of that stuff. Doesn't matter. From their standpoint, they have a, I don't know what you want to call it. They have a right, like any country has a right, to do what is in their best interest. You're just not accustomed to it because you're so used to the vast idiots in Europe basically going as client states. Yeah, and can, can I throw something? You're going in a totally different direction. Okay. I'm going to read something to you. You didn't have corroboration from FBI databases, from other intelligence community agencies, or from Christopher Steele, and it still went uh. into the FISA application? Yes. This is Durham on yesterday. Yes. We, we were reporting. Oh, it, yeah. This was after our show, so yeah. we didn't get a chance to actually talk about this. So this was the a million dollars to Christopher Steele to say, look, just prove to us that this is true. We'll give you a million bucks. Could not do it. Couldn't and do and it. what we didn't talk about yesterday, and I didn't, even, I didn't even think about it. Yes, we're talking about the million dollars. We're talking about this is basically was a hoax. But remember, this was all tied to the FISA application. Yes. So they used this basically all of this BS information to get a FISA warrant. Think about that. That FISA warrant was then used to spy, spy on yes. Carter Page. Because Part of the Trump Carter administration. Page at first, and he had, Carter Page had already left the Trump campaign by that point. And I think, so on the same day... By the way, they kept doing it, by the way. They got multiple yes. things on the exact same bogus information that they were using. It was like, oh, we have this PP tape. The FBI knew that thing was nonsense. Yes. On the very same day, September 19, 2016, that it submitted its FISA application, it was the same day that the um, Trump campaign, the Trump lawyer, Michael Sussman, brought white papers to the FBI headquarters to within General Counsel James lawyers. Baker. Yes, um, and it was and that to allege that the um, Trump organization was using a back channel to communicate with Kremlin linked Alpha Bank. But think about that though. <laughs> it's like they on the are, very same day. That uh, no coincidence, no coincidence. And and keep in mind, Sussman went there saying, "Look, I'm just here as an honest American that wants to." You know, to tell you that Trump is doing something nefarious with those Russians in Moscow. Yes, I'm a political operative. Oh, he didn't say that part. Well, no, he didn't. That's why he was getting that. Right. That's why he was being prosecuted now. Yeah, I'm I'm a political operative for the Clinton campaign. He didn't say that. He should have said that. He should have said that. I'm here purely on my own merits. 
no reason at all. I'm just a concerned citizen. And I just want to tell you this. And you find out the guy was working for the Clinton campaign. Guy was working for the Clinton campaign. They sold that stovepipe that stuff into the FBI, and they basically used that as a pretext to spy on the Trump administration. Knowing full well it was bogus. It was bogus. So, so what do you guys want? You want Hillary Clinton behind bars? Is that? What? I don't care about I Hillary want Clinton parody. behind bars. <laughs> I don't want the le- put it this way. I, I don't want. I remember. I remember. They got the saying, lock her up. Calls. Lock yes. her up. Yeah, I don't know. Oh I just want some level of equal equality when we're engaging the various political candidates. That's all. Meaning, if you're if you're not going to invade Hillary Clinton and have the FBI raid her place um, for the servers, you, you want them to go up. Where is she, Nantucket? I don't know where she is now, but at the time, those things, those servers had problematic, and if there was anybody else, they would have put them under a jail. Yes. Um, and now they raided Trump's Mar-a-Lago. Well, I guess my point is, look, I don't want the federal government and the all and the powers that the government has at its disposal to be used to go after political actors. Right. I don't want it to be used in partisan ways. Weaponizing the federal government against your political is, enemies, which is what they accuse Donald Trump. Yes, of it is grotesquely problematic. Yeah. Look, uh, Roger Stone, on for example, side. Yeah, on either side. Roger Stone, they raided his house like it was a military compound. You may hate Roger Stone. You may think he's a political operative. You may think he shouldn't have lied to the courts. Guns all of that stuff. Got six in the morning. And it's like CNN was sitting right there with him with just the camera. Happened to be. Just happened to be. They just randomly were walking through the neighborhood and they just so happened to be there with the camera. And Roger Stone is like an old guy, political operative, getting dragged out of his house at gunpoint. Why? Only to make a point. It's just to make the point. Mm-hmm. Should the federal government and the auspices and the powers of that government be used for po- political and partisan ways? I don't care what side, whether it's Scary Poppins and their thing of trying to get rid of certain mm-hmm. information that they don't want to deal with, or whether that's Roger Stone getting dragged out of his house with a gun. They could have sent Roger Stone a court notice and say, hey, we need you to appear in court in this day. He would have showed up. Yeah, and know that if they did it to me, they're yeah. gonna, they will do it to you. Anybody. Like, it, and it doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat. It can happen yes. to you. And that is the problem that we saw during the early the early, the early days of the um, Russia collusion investigation that you had career, yeah. not political uh, attorneys working at the Department of Justice. You had career yeah. employees at the Department of Justice who were basically pushing this fake information yeah, to, keep it to get the Pfizer warrant. And by the way, even with Clinton, I mean, they didn't have a real investigation of Clinton in the way that they would have the local offices contacting her and them mm-hmm. using the power to threaten this person in order to get information. They didn't do any of that stuff with her. They, and, but, and we didn't even talk about Susan's, Susan Rice's email that she left to herself. Do you remember she sent the email right. to herself? And I, I think it may have been inauguration on inauguration yeah. day or something saying, well, hey, we're just putting this out there as a reminder that we're not saying that something is going on here. But we want to want to make sure that we're saying that the Barack Obama administration, we want a full, fair investigation with no type. I mean, it was and everybody said that that was quite unusual Yes, for her to. And she was the um, in the position that Michael Flynn was in at the time. And yeah. all of this was about Michael Flynn because they had concerns that Michael Flynn was... Um, he's doing something nefarious. Yeah, something. doing something. Yeah. But even though he's in the very same position and he was leaked, he um, there was nothing to prevent him from talking to Russian officials right. as the incoming national security it director or something, something yeah. like that. There was nothing that prevented him from doing, but they said, we think that there may be something. And Comey himself said, I have no information, um, no evidence that Flynn is um, giving classified information to the Russians. Yeah. He said that he had no indication that that was happening. Didn't stop him at all. But they still Yeah. Didn't stop him at all. Yeah. Look, this stuff is problematic, man. When you get a situation 
where you have both sides, <clears throat> neither wants to accept the legitimacy of a particular election. That is dramatically problematic. Your entire integrity of your um, political system is determined basically on this idea that the people are putting people in office who they voted for, etc. Meaning their entire legitimacy of a particular candidate or of a particular office is delegated by the public's choice. The moment you get to that point where neither political party accepts the legitimacy of the, oh, you are in a world of, you know what? Yeah. Let's do this. We have our guests. We're going to talk to Mark Frost about the economic data that has come out. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM, 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102. Point, yeah, 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Don't be shy. We'll call for your calls probably at 945. But the economic news has come in. Now, I sat listening to the president of the United States, Joe Biden. And Joe Biden looked into the camera. Oh, at the very least, he was looking at Jake Tapper. We couldn't see their feet. I think they were touching feet um, under beneath the uh, camera. They're they playing footsies. footsies. That's the word I was looking for. They're playing footsies oh, no. under the camera. And he, Joe Biden, with all of the... I guess, gravitas of a guy with a 30-something percent approval rating, basically says, hey, this may not be a recession. I don't know if there's going to be one. If it is, it's going to be a very light one or a soft landing, et cetera. And then their data come out this morning, stocks sink after annual inflation measure and returns to a 40-year high. A key measure of inflation came in hotter than investors had hoped, giving the Fed more leeway to hike rates to a historic level. Dow futures tumble more than 400 points to 1.5%. Right here, American consumers continue to be punished, their word, not mine, by high prices despite lower gas costs and unprecedented action by the Federal Reserve to tame inflation according to data released on Thursday. Annual inflation rose by 8.2% in September, a slower increase than 8.3% rise in August, according to Consumer Price Index, which measures changes in price for a basket of consumer goods and services. By the way, again, not including energy, not including food. Mark, we're joined with Mark Sloboda. I mean, I'm sorry. We're joined with Mark Frost. Mark Frost is an economist, professor, consultant, drummer, Eagle Scout, Marine, capitalist, supertenarian, and recovering libertarian. Mark, you are the man who the pointed drummer. out. Yeah, you are the one who pointed out for over a year now why the Biden administration was like, oh, inflation is temporary. It's transient. It's something that is going to go away over a period of time. They told us this all the way up to like two months ago. And now this number is getting worse. The pound is basically dropping. The euro is basically dropping. And the Federal Reserve, doesn't seem to have the mechanisms or the capability in order to get this under control. Mark, what is going on? People are voting with their feet. I want to find out first, though, did, did, the, gov- did, did the government have a FISA warrant for Sputnik? Is that why you... <laughs> Listen, we don't even know I don't know. We got morning. here and everything was dark. It was like the security systems were off. We were like on battery power. You're thinking like I am, Mark. I'm like, hey, I think this is in-house. Our producer like, was like, Zelensky's out for us, yeah, man. Yeah, no, I'm He's like, this is in-house. This is, <laughs> this is local. Yes, we came into a dark studio. Yes, it was like we finally have been added to the list. Dark brand. And they're, try- they're trying to get us. Um, yeah, it was very weird this morning. We didn't even start till 8 o'clock this morning. 
But thank you for joining us, Mark. Definitely thank you for joining us. Mark was supposed to join us at 7.30, and so he was nice enough to come on at 9.15. Thanks, Mark. But, but yeah, uh, seriously speaking, what's happening here is when you have government that's not united, uh, I love what you were talking about. You can't have a civilization where both sides don't trust each other to the point where you don't even accept the election outcome. Exactly. So it, it also works that way with fiscal and monetary policy, because most developed nations have a certain amount of distance between their central bank and their Congress or their legislative body. The idea is, is that monetary policy affects things so long term that it ought to be to the extent that it can be removed from the volatility of politics and the whims of the of the public. That's kind of the argument for it. But what you have here is you have a country that says, we're not going to quit spending. We're going to increase our spending. And you have a central bank that is fighting inflation while it's being forced to purchase the guilt or bonds of, of the country to keep its to keep the pound sterling afloat. So you can't, uh, I, I've said on this uh, program many times, central banks have a three-pronged task. They, can, they have to be a lender of last resort. That's the primary reason to stop bank runs. They are to fight inflation, and they're to promote full employment. You can't do all three at the same time. Right. It's really impossible. You've got to value two of them and let one slide. You just can't do it. And so this is an example of the Brits trying to have their cake and eat it, too. Well, wait, before we get to Britain, I do want to get to the U.S. and the numbers that basically came out this morning. The, you know, the what is it? Point four percent increase. And like they said, this wasn't even including um, food and energy. I mean, this increase was basically on like services and those type of things that the American public is going to have to deal with right here. Here's another one. The pace of U.S. job growth is expected to be roughly cut in half during the fourth quarter of this year, according to the media outlet reporting on Monday. They're talking about CNN reported as pressure from the rate hikes mounts. It's not recession. <laughs> well, it says they're, they're talking about basically 175,000 jobs being lost in the first quarter. And then they're saying that this is going to lead into 2023 where the same thing is going to basically take place. And despite what Joe Biden is saying, um, Bank of America is saying, quote, the premise is a harder landing rather than a softer one. That's astonishing. The president is still arguing that, look, this is going to be easy. This is going to be light. It's not going to be that bad. And yet the numbers are repudiating what is coming out of his mouth. What you see is not what you see. Yeah, but pay no attention to what you're seeing with your eyes, your lying eyes. So what is happening in the United States, Mark, on this? Like, why are these numbers this deplorable? And why is the Biden administration still considering, oh, this is going to be a soft landing, despite, it seems, all the evidence to the contrary? The monetary fund came out with numbers like this, yet, what, Citigroup, if I'm not mistaken? Meaning multiple groups, multiple organizations, multiple banks are coming out basically saying this looks bad even in the U.S.? I mean, this is just more of the same of the gaslighting. I mean, politicians gaslight just in general. Right. But for the last four years, correct me if you have a different opinion, but this last four or five years, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Yeah. Where, I mean, I should not have to argue with someone about two plus two equals four, right? Right. That should not be the argument. Now, maybe how, after we calculate that number, how we use it is up for... Uh, well, maybe you stick it in this, uh, you know, maybe you stick it in this variable, you stick it in that variable. But the actual fact itself should not be something that we're arguing over. And that troubles me because I'm a scientist. I mean, at the end of the day, I go where the truth leads, even if I don't like the truth. I mean, I'm a human being. I have emotions. I don't like it. 
you know, if my, I'm not married, but if my wife is cheating on me and I have undeniable proof that she's cheating on me, I'm not going to ignore the fact that she's cheating on me because she's cheating on me. Right. <laughs> right, right. It's like, if I don't know about, there was a situation where the people were on the airplane and the guy saw like a UFO outside the airplane. All these people went to the window to watch. And one guy decided he didn't want to go. So when the plane landed, they stopped him and said, I don't believe in UFOs. Like, I, I, I'm not going to that window. Why? I don't believe in it already. It becomes something like that, where it's like, dude, all of the data around you is indicating something very specific. You guys in your country is going through economic turmoil. And at the point where inflation is still going up, despite what the Fed is doing, does Jerome Powell have the tools necessary in order to get it under control, especially if a lot of what's going on is external and geopolitical? Part of the problem, too, I think you guys probably remember even maybe a year and a half ago when I was on and we were talking about, you know, the impact of PPP and stuff right. like that. And I said that we don't have a shortage of capital in the United States. If the problem is not that we have that we have illiquidity or that we have a shortage of capital. In fact, corporations are flooded in capital. So a lot of that so-called stimulus money just went into uh, corporations either buying back their debt or buying back their stock. And so what you had is, is you have all this flood of capital, and it's not really being used for productive purposes. You had all of this money from companies where the companies didn't use that money in order to expand production, to, you know, expand industry. Basically, they just used it to buy back their money. So the money basically didn't go anywhere to do anything for the productive powers of the country itself. Exactly. And that's what inflation is. I mean, it's uh, I think the press gets too complicated on inflation. It's not that complicated. You print a bunch of money, and if you print more money than the growth in productivity, then you have a fixed set of goods and services chasing a larger basket of money. And that's what inflation is. And a lot of what's going on in the world right now, what I've noticed, and the way to go test these things is go look at the currency markets. What are investors willing and able to bet their own money on. And if you look and see what's happening, European economies all over the world and Asian economies, people are betting against the currencies and they're betting on the dollar. Now, some people maybe uh, might say, oh, well, that's a good thing, right? The dollar's rising. Well, no, because you need the purpose of a central bank uh, from an international perspective is to create a currency that's stable. And I'll say it again. I know it's inconvenient. People don't like it. But the most stable currency right now is the Russian ruble. If you're an investor and you want a place to park your money and you're going to be subject to, to the roller coaster, either either you're, you know, it's manic depression, either you're, you know, either you're up on a high or you're down in the valley. Right. That's the most that's the least volatile. And that's a fact. This isn't my opinion. There's this thing called a standard deviation that you can go and you can actually calculate the deviations from a central tendency, and you can look at the number, and if this number is bigger than the United States' number, then that means that that is less volatile than the United States' number. It's a mathematical treatment of it. And the currency markets are completely turned over right now. Nobody knows exactly what's going on. The reason the dollar's climbing so much is we remember there is no objective monetary standard in the world anymore. Right, relative. He uses fiat currency, and everybody's fiat currency trades against each other. But the United States dollar is the reserve currency, and so you have about 60% on any given day that for, of international demand for U.S. dollars. 
Nowadays, that international demand has probably doubled. So it's ramped up the dollar. Well, the dollar can't rise. It's literally impossible for the U.S. dollar to rise unless some other currency falls. Well, which currencies are falling? Pound and euro. It, it, it's our allies. Yeah. <laughs> our allies' currencies are tanking because the dollar is on a meteoric rise because everybody has this flight to safety. And it's something we've imposed on ourselves. And it's great if you want to take a vacation overseas, great. I do, yeah. If you want to buy a washing machine that's imported, it's great. But in terms of what kind of stability, what kind of world stability is this likely to lead to? This is the sort of thing that causes revolutions. I was in Indonesia in 1998. When I got there, the rupiah was 2,000 rupiah per dollar. Within about five weeks after I got there, it was 22,000 rupiah per dollar. Whoa. And, and there was riots in the street. And I don't just mean a few. It was revolutionary riots. And it it completely disrupted society. People who had worked 30, 40 years, their entire nest egg had just been, if they had held it in rupiah, had just been completely knocked away. And this is what's going, this is what's, this is the pressures that's going to be going on in Europe because when the United States sneezes, they get the flu. And there's going to be, my, my prediction is, that if it's not already that way, and I think it already is, but if it's not already that way, the number one issue in Europe uh, will not be Ukraine. Increasingly, it seems to me that Europeans are, are saying, wait just a minute, although we don't like this, there is a limit to what we're willing to spend, and there's a limit to the opportunity cost that we're willing to suffer to support this regime that we didn't even like, you know, two, three years ago. Mark, just this is Reese. So curious. I know that, OK, we're on par or on the path for inflation. But do you really do you see any chance for hyperinflation? And can you walk us through the distinction between the two? Um, you know, something reminiscent of, I guess, Bulgaria in the 90s where, you know, you've got $100,000 and it's like literally worth $50. So can you walk us through that and what the what would need to happen for us to even be on that path? Uh, yes. Uh, hyperinflation is generally defined as when the value of a currency uh, in terms of gold or something hard, like somebody else's currency, starts to fall at an at a exponentially fast rate. So, for instance, let's look at the, the greatest example is probably, at least in modern times, is Zimbabwe. At one time, the Zimbabwe dollar, I believe, was about 25 Zimbabwe dollars per uh, U.S. dollar. Uh, within just a ye- couple years, it hit, I believe it took one trillion Zimbabwe dollars. Oh, geez. Are you serious? <laughs> well, yeah. Right now, in my, in my office, I actually bought it on eBay for about $5. They made monetary history because in my office, in a... It, in a frame is a $10 trillion Zimbabwe note. Mark, that is, wow. Start paying your bills. So it's one thing to print money and have some inflation, but when you literally start paying your bills with printed money and you pay your employees with printed money and you stimulate the economy so that your cronies vote for you uh, with printed money, 
what that does is it completely destroys the middle class. And think about it from a government's perspective, you're paying your debts with printed money. So somebody loaned you a billion dollars and you pay them back with something that has the purchasing power of a hundred dollars. Mm. Basically, robbing from Peter to pay Paul or borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. Um, I need you to walk me through something. I was watching the information on Britain yesterday, and I was watching the pound basically collapse. It's an astonishing thing to watch. And the analysis on it, the guy was making the point of saying, look, this level of variability doesn't really take place over the course of a year, let alone over the course of a few days. And that, that basically that's what the British economy was going through. Now, this started when England ruled out extending quantitative easing, basically saying by Friday, this is going to be over with. And so whatever you need to do, you need to get it straight by then. Explain what is quantitative easing and what was what is going on with the markets in the UK? It has something to do with the pension funds. Um, and somehow this kind of, I guess, the pension funds collapsing in value if the British bank didn't continue to quantitative easing. Walk us through that. What is quantitative easing? What is going on in the UK? And how are they related to the pension funds in the UK? Sure. Quantitative easing is when the Fed buys something at a premium. That is when a central bank buys something at a premium. Quantitative tightening is when they sell something at a discount. And let me uh, use an example. Let's say the Fed wants to stimulate the money supply and they decide we're going to buy your car. And let's say your car is worth 40000 and they give you 50000 for it. Well, they just stimulated the economy, right? Now, you're going to sell your car, not because you want to sell your car to the Fed, because they just offered you $10,000 more than what it's worth. And you would be irrational if you didn't take it, because you can just go buy another car for $40,000. Right, keep the 10 for yourself. So that, that's all quantitative easing is. The, the central bank buys something. Now, that something is almost always their own bonds, which is a completely different show if you want to do that sometime. It's a little bit of a Ponzi scheme because the the treasury of a nation actually creates the debt. And then the quasi-governmental independent financial arm of the government, the central bank, creates money that buys the created bonds. So you have bonds that are only have value by faith that are purchased by printed money, which only has value by faith. And then people wonder why markets crash down the road when people lose faith in them. And that's all, that's what happened in the Bank of England. You cannot, uh, so, so what they were doing was because they were worried about the economy, they were buying securities from British banks at a premium. And when they buy bonds at a premium, that that drives the price of a bond up. And when you drive the price of a bond up, what happens to its yield? It goes down. When you, when you put downward pressure on yields, then interest rates move accordingly. It works the opposite when they're wanting to tighten, when they're wanting to make money more scarce, choke off investment, choke off entrepreneurial behavior, and they want to, to cool off the economy to fight inflation. Then they, then they motivate the greedy banks by selling them something at a discount. Now, what if I came to you uh, and I said, you know what? I'll sell you my car. It's worth $40,000. You can, you can go to any place, any place in the country. We'll just write you a check for $40,000, but I'm going to sell it to you for $30,000. Well, every bank in the country is going to sell their securities 
their government, their the uh, secondary market government bonds that they hold, because those are considered reserves. Those count as reserves, just like cash in the bank, just like money on deposit at the Fed. Oh, because the assumption is the bank is always, or the government is always going to pay their. Yes, exactly. So when the when the Federal Reserve buys those securities from the bank, excuse me, when they sell their securities to the bank, that, think about it, the bank has to pay for those with cash, which reduces the bank's liquidity. Right. And so when you reduce the bank's liquidity, the amount of excess loanable funds that they have to loan out. But does the bank have to buy it? Like, meaning if you come to me and say, hey, I have a car, it's $10,000 cheaper. I don't have to buy your car. Does the bank have to buy the reserves or do they have to sell the reserves back to the Bank of England, if I'm understanding this correctly? Uh, No, they don't have to. But just kind of think about it this way. If a bank can make 5% net by loaning money, but they can make 8% without any risk at all by just doing what the Fed wants, you're in charge of a bank. What are you going to choose? Oh, I see. Because there's no risk. This is a this is guaranteed profit for the commercial banks. There's, there's 42 of them that are licensed to do open market operations with the, with the Fed, and this is literally guaranteed profit for the banks. This is why generally society says we can regulate you because we support you and take care of you and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but that's, that's literally how monetary policy works. It's if, when a central bank wants to lower interest rates, they, what they're actually doing is they're manipulating the bond market and they're trying to drive the price of bonds upward because you drive the price of bonds upward, then average yields decline. Uh, if you're wanting tightening, then you're going to sell something to them that removes liquidity from the bank. And remember, from the Fed, from, the, from a central bank's perspective, any currency that they have is considered a lot. Outstanding currency in circulation is a liability. So, so the Fed's $10 trillion balance sheet, those are liabilities, not assets. That's money the Fed owes. So let me get this. So just so I want to make sure I understand it. The bank, the Liz Trust comes in and she says, okay, we're going to pay all of this money in order to help with energy bills. So in one sense, basically the government is now printing a lot of money. They're basically borrowing money, in which case there are more bonds, which lowers, I guess, the cost of the bonds themselves. So it costs creative, um, which it required quantitative easing in order to ensure that, I guess in this case, the pension funds basically didn't collapse. I guess there's, and maybe I'm saying this poorly, but all things being equal, they were doing quantitative easing which means that they were buying money from various banks. Am I correcting? Am I understanding that they were buying loans or, or debt from various banks in order to keep those banks solvent? Uh, yes, they were trying to, to keep my metaphor going. They were trying to have two lovers at the same time. I mean, that's literally what they're trying to do. They, they had announced, this is, this is the, I mean, if you really want to peel the onion back and see why the pound has crashed and why I predict it's going to continue crashing, is Britain right now is in is practicing schizophrenic fiscal and monetary policy. On on the one side of the coin, the central bank had announced that it's going to start tightening, and then because the pension plans and because that's a big political football in the UK, because of the pension plans, they're like, wait, just a minute, we have to go protect this. So then they started buying. You've got to remember when the when the central bank of any country buys a pencil, they that increases the money supply by the value of that pencil. Money's fungible. 
It doesn't matter what they buy. They could buy anything. Oh, so even buying debts expands the money supply. Absolutely. So, yes, when the central bank buys anything, the money supply increases. If the central bank hires me as an employee, my salary increases the money supply. That's the nature of a central bank. Anything they buy increases the money supply. Anything they sell decreases the money supply because when they sell it, the, the currency outstanding that is in, in circulation declines. Because people are buying it back at that point, meaning the banks have to put out money in order to buy back the securities, which lessens the amount of money that's in the bank. And so what the Fed does is they just crowd out any other rational decision that a banker uh, would do. So every bank has a loan and discount committee or something of that similar name, and they meet, usually weekly, and they go over what the reserves are, uh, do we need to engage in federal open market operations? Do we want to, you know, uh, what do we want to do? And if the Fed makes them an offer and says, we'll give you a return higher than any loan you could ever make, of course they're going to take it. And that's how the system works. I said, uh, one of my favorite courses to teach is, is, the, is the intro to money and banking. And I start the class off and I say, by the end of this class, you're going to be shocked because I've always said, if people truly understood how the money system works, would have a different money system. Hey, Mark, uh, it's Malik here. I, I have two questions for you. Hopefully you can get to both of them. One of them may be sounding a little conspiratorial, but hey, I have some of that in me. With Joe Biden, the U.S. continuing to send money to Ukraine and obviously our you know, with inflation rising here and considering what's happening over there in Europe, like they seem to be doing a little bit worse than the U.S. Do you think, so the first question is, do you think that the U.S., particularly Joe Biden, we're kind of okay using Europe as our sacrificial lamb when it comes to, um, in, a, as a backdoor uh, to get against Russia that's one thing. The second thing, can you explain what it means just in practical terms for the Fed Reserve? Um, they, they've now, I think for the fifth time since March, raised the interest rate. What does it mean? Because Jerome Powell is saying we're going to continue raising the interest rate until inflation is tamped down. So there's a one thing about the, the do you think that the U.S. is absolutely fine with using Europe in a, in a way to get at uh, Russia, but also can you explain what it means if the Fed Reserve continues to raise interest rates? Sure. And yeah, you can ask me any question. I'm in a good mood this week. <laughs> My Tulsi Gabbard high. <laughs> I've been that happy in a long, long time. Uh, so, uh, yeah, um, money's fungible. So Right now, we're still borrowing. We don't have a balanced budget. We have a deficit. So if, if, a country has a dead, if a country has a deficit because of the fungibility of money, anything that country buys is being bought printed money, either printed in the form of debt by the Treasury Department or printed in the form of money and or printed in the form of money by the central bank. So the the Going back to what I was saying earlier, when the Fed says that it's raising interest rates, remember what that actually means. There's not a button. There's not a knob at the Fed that they can just turn and say, we're going to make long-term interest rates 10%, whatever. Uh, what they have to do is they, they have a target, that they, and they have, these, they have these econometric models that tell them, okay, how much do I need, how, how much of our portfolio, of our U.S., of our 
secondary market U.S. Treasury bond portfolio, do we need to sell to commercial banks to drive down the price of bonds so that the yields on bonds rise? And that's how they do it. So uh, it's pretty clear to me that the Fed has decided that they're that that they're going to fight inflation as opposed to accommodate the administration and the midterm elections that are coming up. So that's it does seem like the Fed's serious to me because here's the thing about monetary policy. It's it all works by faith. The Fed has to be perceived as serious before investors will take them serious because if if they're not perceived as serious, investors will just say, oh, okay, this is this is the party right now, but in three months, it's going to be something different. So what the Fed wants people to believe is that the, the liquidity of banks is going to continue to be drained so that a lot of lending will not, that would otherwise take place will not take place. And when that lending doesn't take place, eventually, the pool of capital that's available for entrepreneurial projects dries up and job creation dries up. And when job creation dries up, eventually the public stops spending money. When, uh, when the public stops spending money, now you have a retail slump. Uh, shelves start getting full. People stop buying as many things. And then the economy becomes less hot. It cools off. And the argument is, let's throw several million people out of work so that we keep this inflation thing under control. So that's what we should expect here in the state. Is that, is that it doesn't care about the little guy. It's just there's absolutely zero concern in this entire system for the little guy who gets bounced around like a racquetball uh, as these processes. Mark, last question. So what should we expect in the states? I mean, Powell is still increasing interest rates, or the Fed is still increasing interest rates. Inflation is still going up. Both of these things are seem to be happening simultaneously. Yeah. So what's the expectation? Fight inflation. If the goal is to, if the Fed, see, I don't, I'm not, I'm not at the Fed, but if the Fed's primary goal is to fight inflation, they haven't even come close to going as far as they're going to have to go. Uh, I think I said six months ago, my best guess was that rates were probably going to have to be driven up to about 15 to 16 percent. Really? That high? This thing goes away. Rates were at like zero percent for God knows how long. I mean, is the fact that the rates were low affecting us now? Meaning the inflation that we're dealing with now is because all of these like zombie companies and everything else in the Fed basically kept the rates low. Is that what we're on some level dealing with, kind of a consequence from previous action? To answer your question a little bit, yeah. I don't want to say no. Yeah, it does affect it a little bit because if you overprint, if you overstimulate the economy, and it is something that Americans make a mistake on, you can't constantly be stimulating the economy. Else, when you really need to stimulate the economy, you don't have the money to do it. Right. It's one of the reasons why back two years ago when you're saying, what should we do on the shutdowns and all this kind of stuff? I go, folks, 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 there's unintended consequences. Right now, all we care about is not dying of COVID. But I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, in six months to a year, 
You're not even going to care about COVID anymore. You're going to care about what did I do to my life? Right. <laughs> so what did I do to my life? Mark, man, great conversation. I, look, as I was going through the financial analysis yesterday, I was like, okay, I need Mark to explain this. So <laughs> much appreciated. Mark Frost is an economist, professor, consultant, drummer, Eagle Scout, Marine, capitalist, Schubertonarian, and recovering libertarian. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Frosty Cash. Um, let's do this. Yeah, let's do this. We're going to take calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. It is a dark, dark idea that they are increasing rates, which is basically going to cut jobs, knowingly so. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the point, right? Constrain the money supply. While the same token, we have the situation of inflation. Mm-hmm. So in one sense, the people are dealing with this issue of, okay, I'm potentially going to lose my job, or we're going to have hundreds of thousands of people whose job are lost. Simultaneously, they're paying more for the items that they get. So when I go to the store and get meat, potatoes, whatever, I am paying more money for it, despite the fact that my job is also now at risk. That is a dark, dark time. Tarif, New Orleans, what's going on, my man? How you doing? Thank y'all for taking my call. First, I'd like to say free German science. Here's my comment to make my points. If the, um, I thought about something two days ago. If the Republicans don't go to a center right, right, where they can um, stop cutting taxes, which it when when they cut taxes, it hurt social programs in the cities, right? Right, right. Less money going into those programs. Yeah, yeah. They have to like first. They have to start sucking up people into the um, correlation. Trump got to start sucking up people like Tulsi Gabbard, which I don't agree with everything she says, but at least she's something like a moderate to me, to liberal. Uh, Ryan Paul to a certain extent, you know. And some other moderate Republicans and some and, and Republicans are leaning to the left as well. You still have liberal Republicans. I don't know who they are, but I'm, I'm sure they're out there. <laughs> Not very many. Yeah, I was about to <laughs> say, Tariq, I don't know. I don't know any, per se. But no, keep going, Tarif. I'm sorry. But yeah, so because if they don't do it because 2024 come around and the rumors circulating, Okay, Trump DeSantis. To me, that's gonna be they gonna be that's gonna be too that's gonna be too conservative, too to the right, right? Right. The rumor circulating is gonna be on um, Gavin Newsom and Michelle Obama, and that's gonna be like a, a ace team. For- Wait, say it again. Gavin Newsom and Michelle Obama running for office together? Well, anyway, it's a rumor circulating around there. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, the Republicans need to get the stuff together because it, 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 the 2024 elections is not in the bag for them. And I'm no, I'm not, look, I'm just letting everybody know I'm not a Republican. I'm independent. Right. But I think if Trump get in there, we have a chance of, um, of, of putting back into the infrastructure and things of that nature and leaving NATO alone and vaulting these roles. But if the Democrats get back in there, because you all know that the chicken hawks right now, Gavin Newsom, Mr. Pretty Boy, smiley face, he takes over. Then it's going to be the same neoliberal, neoconist type of stuff. But if, if it's Trump, it need to be Trump and in in a, a moderate Republican. It can't be Trump and DeSantos or Trump and um another hardcore Republican. It got to be Trump and a, a like a moderate. Sharif, I accept what you're saying. I appreciate it. We'll see. Um, thank you all. Always appreciate it. Tariff from New Orleans. Mark in New York. Take you back off what Teresa's talking about. I just like to think that uh, the calamity that will face America will determine uh, the politics of 24 and who will be, as they, you know, the elite will either pull the string and say, listen, we want something that favors our interests in terms of making sure we're okay. Uh, as far as the working class, I think we're going to suffer even, great, even greater uh, perplexities and problems. 
irrespective of whether it's Democrat or Republican. Mark, Mark, Biden said it's going to be a soft landing. <laughs> you're saying the president is not telling the truth in this moment. Is that what you're saying? There's no, there's no soft landing whatsoever. Decimating a secondary economy, the European market for what it is, we also sell goods into that market. At the same time, what we're faced with in terms of what Frost was talking about is the reflective inflation and the trying to strengthen our money supply with debt growing, national debt growing. The way they're going to hurt the working class is by crushing the labor market, but they really want to wring out the, the loose money that's in the stock market from all these high-inflated high stock prices and trading that's going on. And Mark was wrong on one thing, the Federal Reserve, the banks that participate are required to buy and increase their reserves in order to reduce the money supply or increase it. So they must buy the bonds. The oh, I see. By, 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 by trading in those bonds, they, essentially if they, remove the tre- if they remove the Federal Reserve, the Treasury could print as much money as they needed to, to without the cost. But because we do it in, in lending money and supply the money supplied by, by, by increasing interest rates so somebody can make money on it, the traders, um, this is where we're in this complex situation with both not so much a lot of money chasing goods because we know the good, the, the, chain, the supply chains have been broken up. What we have more on the end is just the fact that we've, we've decimated the, the current order by virtue of making Russia the boogeyman and collapsing Europe. Very complex issue, but which is, is very challenging. It is. And and unfortunately, all of us are going to have to basically deal with that as a direct result of the choices that were made by this administration for geopolitical interests. Mark, much appreciated. You hear the music? We've come to the end of a started off challenging, but ended up being actually a really good show. I want to thank our producers. I want to thank our engineer. I want to thank um, Reese Everson. I want to thank Malik Abdul. I want to thank all of you, our listeners, callers, people who hear us on the radio. Fault lines. Back in the morning. Friday, we're over the hump. See you guys tomorrow. Fault lines.